The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed with host and author of the award-winning book of the same name, Lisa Lutan. Lisa has amazing tips to help you slow down, get healthy, manage your time, improve your relationships, and deal with stress. Now, here is Lisa Lutan. Hey, it's Lisa. Welcome to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed Radio, where I get to introduce you to my favorite health and wellness rock stars. One of the first articles I ever wrote was called, One Girl's Cupcake is Another Girl's Crack Cocaine. It got a very big response, and I talked about my love-hate relationship and struggles with sugar, and I ended up including it as a chapter in my book, Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. I actually then got inspired to develop an online program, Ditch Your Sugar It, to help people take a break or eliminate sugar from their diets. So you can imagine sugar is a topic that I am crazy passionate about. Which is why I am beyond excited. I am literally jumping up and down right now for today's guest, Gary Taubes. Gary's latest book, The Case Against Sugar, is a national bestseller and a book that was so needed right now. Gary is the co-founder of the Nutrition Science Initiative, an award-winning science and health journalist, the author of Why We Get Fat and Good Calories, Bad Calories, which are also amazing books that I highly recommend. And he has received numerous awards. We are so lucky to have him here with us today. Gary, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. So, Gary, I always start every interview with my Lisa's five Ask Every Guest questions. Number one, what did you have for breakfast today? What did I have for breakfast today? Well, I had, uh, let's see, uh, piece of, uh, uh, um, what's it called, pumpernickel toast with uh, a sort of fish salad, uh, salmon salad on it. So not the kind of salmon salad where you have a piece of salad and then on top of greens, but the kind of, if you can imagine, a salmon version of tuna fish salad. I can imagine, totally imagine yeah. that. What is your favorite form of exercise? My favorite form of exercise is pretty much what I can still do with my uh, the remains of my knees from playing college football. So it's either uh, rowing on a, a rowing machine or uh, doing high-intensity exercise on a spin cycle or ideally going for a hike in the hills around Berkeley where I live in California, but um, that requires more time and I tend not to have a lot of time. What is a habit you are trying to break or add? Uh, Trying to break or add? Um, I still chew the occasional uh, nicotine gum, so I'm always telling myself that when I run out of my latest supply, I'll quit since... I chew so little, it can't possibly be hard to do. 
And as for ad, it's always an attempt to spend less time on the Internet and more time actually functioning in front of my computer um, Mm -hmm. or spending time with my children. That's mine, too. How (laughs) How do you spend the first hour of your day? Uh, drinking coffee, <laughs> um, taking a shower, making my kids breakfast, and doing emails. And who is someone in your life that inspires you? My life that inspires me. Um, is there, they have to be in my life? No, no, just somebody that's inspirational to you. Um. You know, everyone who gets through the day in the current political environment without getting depressed inspires me. What can I say? (laughs) Good answer. So, Gary, this morning, my spin instructor announced to the class that it's the 100th year anniversary of Marshmallow Fluff. She then told us that if it wasn't for fluff, her son would have starved growing up because all he ate were fluff or nutter sandwiches. What is your reaction to this? Uh, my mouth is open, literally. Um, I didn't know it was a 100-year anniversary, and I don't want to question the parenting skills of your spinning instructor, but I think if my children, well... Yeah, I, it's an interesting concept. I would have worked harder, I think, to find other foods that my child would eat, even to the point of letting them be hungry for a few days at a time until they develop a taste for something other than marshmallow fluff. Or my jaw dropped as well. But I'm a bit zealous on this point, or I wouldn't have written a book. Absolutely. And, you know, I think her son is in his 20s now. So, you know, back in the 70s or whenever he was growing up, we didn't really know what we know now, correct? Well, we did. That's one of the interesting things. We managed to forget it in the intervening years. So if the son is 20 now, that would be um, the late 90s or mid-90s, maybe when the late 90s when he was born. And that was a period when you know, believe it or not, uh, feeding sugar-rich foods to kids could be conceived, perceived as healthy because they were fat-free. And I'm assuming marshmallow fluffs are fat-free. Um, the, uh, yeah, the dismaying part, it's funny, you do a lot of, I've done, I'm a kind of obsessive researcher, and my first book, you know, Good Calories, Bad Calories, was originally, uh, twice as long as the 600 pages that we published. So at one point I had a 400,000-word unfinished draft that I had to add. That that would be, you know, I I had to ask my editor to read it because I thought maybe we could publish it, split it into two books, like Kill Bill 1 and Kill Bill 2. (laughs) And he said, no, it had to be one book. So then I ended up cutting out half of what was in, more than half of what was in the book and shortening and, you know. Anyway, the point is, among the things I never wrote about is that there's very, uh, a lot of, there's not a lot, there's research in animals where you could change in rats, for instance, you can change the, just the content of the mother's milk 
during the weaning period. And so you can make the mother's milk, you know, could add like sugar to the milk that some of the rats get and the other rats don't. And you end up with rats that appear to be absolutely healthy for the first, you know, through the rat equivalent of middle age, which is one year. And then at one year they become, they develop what we would call metabolic syndrome, which is they become, you know, kind of a pre-diabetic condition and they get fatter. Um, so just by feeding them junk in effect or sugar-rich junk in the, the beginning of their life, they seem completely normal until they hit middle age. And then they develop all the problems that we develop in middle age. So what I, would scare me about this kind of, you know, sugar marshmallow fluff diet, for lack of a better term, and I hope your spinning instructor will forgive me, is that you can have a child who will appear to be completely healthy and then only manifest symptoms of the diet 30 or 40 years later, at which point it's so disconnected from that early diet that you never blame it on that. You just assume it's God's will or fate. But the reality is had they been eating a healthy diet as a child, they would not have manifested those diseases. And that's one of the arguments I make in this book. I don't talk about that specific research. Although I love also in the book when you said that that's why it wasn't considered an addictive drug, I believe, because a lot of the downsides weren't immediate. And so they didn't really recognize it that way, like with other drugs. Is that true? Am I getting that right? Yeah, well, that's, it's an interest. I'm speculating. I'm not stating it beyond the shadow of a doubt. I think the best thing that's ever been said on this question of whether sugar is addictive or not was a line written by a friend of mine, Charles Mann, who's a wonderful journalist historian, um, lives out in uh, Amherst. And in a book he wrote called 1493, in which he discusses the sugar industry, he says scientists debate amongst themselves whether sugar is an addictive substance or people just act like it is. And clearly we act like it is. What's interesting, and it triggers the same response in the brain that other drugs of abuse do, but so does, you know, things like buying shoes will trigger that response as well in some people. That doesn't de facto mean it's addictive. But the point is, other abuse substances, because they do cause sort of immediate physiological response, so caffeine will get your heart beating and, you know, the... Uh, uh, alcohol, if you overconsume it, you'll get, you know, you're slurring your words, uh, flushing, passing out. Other drugs clearly, you know, have these kind of immediate, not just, you know, cause a sensation of pleasure in the brain, but then have these relatively immediate side effects or within, you know, a few months or years, you see the deleterious effects of, of abusing these substances. With sugar, that doesn't exist. To the point, and you don't have to inject it or snort it or smoke it to get the effects. You just have to eat it, and in relatively small doses. So with these other drugs, and even the legal ones, uh, these other psychoactive substances like caffeine and nicotine and alcohol, we at least try to prevent people from getting hooked on them until they're in theory old enough to make adult decisions, so 18 or 21 years old. But with sugar, we're, we're using it as a painkiller or distract the infants during circumcision ceremonies when they're a few days old. 
you know, we're giving them to the kids at six months for, on their first birthday, which is another tradition. So by the time the children get old enough to make decisions for themselves, if this is an addictive drug, they're already addicted. And clearly every parent knows that sugar has some hold over their children that other foods don't. I mean, there's a reason why this, you know, young man was only eating marshmallow fluffs when he was young. Um, And we know that it's the only substance that we have to ration, although now we have to ration screen time too. So that's an interesting issue. But by the time we get to the point that, that you are looking for, so again, the argument I make in this book is that it's a, it's a toxic substance, but a long-term toxin. So it takes years to decades for the effects to manifest themselves. And what makes it so hard to see is because by the time the effects manifest themselves, you're 30, 40 years in uh, so there's not this immediate connection. And when you have a population where everyone consumes the drug or the substance, it's very hard to disassociate the effects from the substance itself. So with cigarettes, we had half the population smoked and half the population didn't. And you could compare the smokers to the non-smokers, and lo and behold, the smokers had a 20-fold increased risk of cancer. But with sugar, everyone consumes it to greater or lesser extent, and so if there is a disease, and I would argue diabetes would be the prime suspect, that is caused by sugar, you can't see the 20, whatever the increased risk is in the sugar consumers, because everyone's consuming sugar. So I know that the, what the science says, but do you personally think sugar is addiction, addictive? I think it's addictive in a different way than other substances, clearly. I, you know, two things inform my writing of the case against sugar that I couldn't, I had to acknowledge in the book because they're part of who I am. Um, so one is that I have two pre-adolescent boys. And so when I'm writing about this sugar, I'm thinking as a parent thinks about sugar, both in the ways that it, I can use sugar to make my children happy or to distract them or to reward them, um, and how much easier life would be if sugar didn't exist. <laughs> um, and then the other fact of life is that I used to be a cigarette smoker, and it took me 20 years, roughly, to quit. I mean, I tried pretty much every day or every other day for most of my life until eventually I successfully quit. And I already acknowledged that I still chew the occasional Nicorette. So I'm still at least mildly addicted to nicotine. So it is different than cigarettes, at least for me. So when you've, you know, trying to quit a drug like cigarettes, um, or I imagine alcohol for alcoholics or harder drugs for other drug addicts, um, and even caffeine for me, because I'm also a caffeine addict, um, you, you could feel the neurons in your brain crying out for this substance, literally craving it. Um, the, with cigarettes and caffeine in the same way for me. I mean, I could barely function for the first three weeks trying to quit because clearly my brain needed this substance to function. You know, there were neurons in my brain that if they weren't getting their nicotine or caffeine hit, they were going to let me know it. And so the first three weeks of quitting is this constant struggle to, and a constant craving, and there's 
constant danger of falling back on it. Um, with sugar, at least for me, out of sight is out of mind. So if even I in the beginning? It, even like if you've been eating it and then you stop eating it, it's just instant like that? Pretty Not much after for, a few days? Well, it, you mean at, the, at a meal... So here's where, you know, and one of the things, the last chapter in the case against sugar is a a meditation on the concept of moderation. It's called how much is still too, how little is still too much. So there are certainly people out there like me who find it easier to eat no sugar at all than to try and eat it in moderation. So a classic example in my life is I'll go out to dinner with my wife to some wonderful restaurant here in the Bay Area of Northern California, and she'll order dessert because she can eat sweets in moderation. So, and I won't because I'm trying to be virtuous and I know <laughs> that once I take a bite, I'm going to want to binge eat the dessert. So she'll take two bites and push her dessert away because she's done and she's satisfied and then I'll start this mental conversation with her dessert like you know, the good angel and the bad angel and the good angel saying, don't do it, you know, you're going to regret it and the bad angel saying, go ahead, do it, you know, you want it. And eventually I'll have a bite, and now the conversation heats up, and now I'm in, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in binge mode, and I imagine this is a lot like how alcoholics are with alcoholers. If they can stop themselves from drinking at all, they're much, you know, they can't do it in moderation. They can't have a little bit of wine or a little bit of scotch, because once they trigger whatever's happening in their brain or their body, it's... You know, the, the craving gets uncontrollable. So then I have to, I'm either going to finish that dessert or I'm going to have to get the waitress to clear it from the table. And then I'll notice the next day, which may or may not be my imagination, that I have a little bit more of a sugar craving than I did the day before. Gary, so hold that thought because we're going to go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about that because I 100% relate to what you're saying and I have a feeling many of our listeners do too. So stay tuned, everybody. I am talking to Gary Tabbs. We're talking about the case against sugar. Be back shortly. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you a busy, stressed, and hungry go-getter who knows what to do to get healthier but has trouble doing it? The problem with popular diets is that they were designed for other people, not you. Sure, they might work for the short term, but for the longer term results, you need a plan designed specifically for your unique body and lifestyle. How about the stress in your life? Do you ever stop and take a deep breath? Do you know what all this stress is doing to your health? Healthy living strategist and author of Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed, Lisa Lutan will get you on your way with coaching, online courses and challenges, and even retreats. You will learn tips and strategies to help you calm down, get healthy, and make you feel and look better than ever. For a limited time, Lisa Lutan is offering a free 15-minute breakthrough session to help you get started feeling better right away. Just visit HealthyHappyAndHip.com to get your free 15-minute breakthrough strategy session. That's HealthyHappyAndHip. Yes, you heard it right. HealthyHappyAndHip.com and enter your info in the contact page. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN. 
are listening to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. Feel like sending an email instead? Send it to Lisa at HealthyHappyAndHip.com. Now, back to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. Here again is Lisa Lutan. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're having a great conversation about sugar with Gary Taubes, author of The Case Against Sugar. And just before the break, Gary was telling us about his battle with dessert. You know, should he have a bite? What happens after that? Kind of that little downward spiral that we all experience. And I, for one, am the same. If I take that first bite, I'm going to go back for more and more and more. I just can't be satisfied with one bite. And so, Gary, some people as you said, are better off not taking that first bite at all. And other people like your wife can take a bite or two and stop. Is that a physiological thing? What is? What do you think is going on there? Uh, I think it's both physiological and, and, and well, it, it is. I think it's clearly physiological. And one of the ways I think differently about this because of my research is um, there used to be a whole school of science called physiological psychology. And the other, the, the, the the underlying concept was that our behaviors are determined, our, our more profound behaviors are determined by underlying physiological states. So, you know, drinking a beer is a behavior, but you drink a beer, you drink water because your body needs more fluid to balance out, to, to establish fluid balance, it's called. And so, um, and there's research that goes back to the 19th century and very profound research. It was kind of one of the many things that got lost with our technological revolution the past 40 years and the, the uh, obsessive focus on genetics and, and singling molecules and that sort of disassociates science from uh, actual human behavior. So anyway, the point is, um, you know, I think clearly, so one of the things about sugar, the uh, one of the things in, in the, the, the case I'm making is when we're talking about sugar, uh, cane or beet sugar or high fructose corn syrup, um, all kinds of sugars, and what separates them from other carbs is they're... Um, there are half a molecule of glucose and half a molecule of fructose, and the fructose is what makes, that's the sweetest of the carbohydrates, so that's what makes sugar sweet, and it's also found in fruit, it's what makes fruit sweet, it's known as fruit sugar, but that the, the glucose, so when you eat bread or potatoes or pasta, it breaks down into glucose, and the glucose gets into your bloodstream, and it raises your blood sugar. You secrete this hormone insulin in response to tell your cells to take up the, the glucose and burn it for fuel, but that fructose in the sugars is metabolized in the liver. And because it's metabolized in the liver, weirdly enough, this is uh, another uh, aspect of this research that got kind of technical. I never even put it in my books. But it's actually possible that what it's doing in the liver is driving this sort of binge behavior that we feel is initially stimulating it. So the brain then gets hardwired to you know, sort of drive, get you to eat more and more sugar because your liver actually, the sugar actually makes your liver feel like the body is starving. <laughs> so it's all kind of paradoxical or, or counterintuitive, but one way or the other, there's 
Clearly, this phenomenon. The interesting thing is alcohol is also metabolized in the liver and, and quite similarly to the way fructose is. And again, this is a behavior you see in alcoholics as well where um, rather than a drink of alcohol quenching their thirst for alcohol, like back when I was a smoker, you know, if I had a cigarette, I didn't want to, it didn't make me want to smoke immediately. It sort of satisfied my need for nicotine for you know, an hour, and then I would want another one. But with alcoholics, you know, one drink stimulates an immediate craving for more. And what you said about sugar, the way you see it is also a revelation I had recently. And I watch my children when they consume sweet things. And there's a French phrase, a French cliche phrase called the appetite, uh, the, uh, the, the appetite begins with the meal. So you actually start eating, and then as you start eating, you get hungrier. And this can be explained by the sort of hormonal response to the foods you're eating. But with sugar, you know, there's never a point with me or my youngest son, for instance, where we're satisfied, where it's like we've had enough sugar and we say, okay, that's good, I've satiated that craving. Rather, it's as though each bite (laughs) makes us hungrier and hungrier, and, you know, my son will stop when I say no more. We were at a um, the school function, a carnival, a couple months ago. My oldest son came up to me. Once you paid to get into the carnival, everything else was free. And my oldest son came up to me and said, you, about my youngest, he said, you know, he's on his fifth snow cone right now, don't you? And I had to go over and find him and say, okay, this is it. There is not going to be a sixth snow cone. Um, had we not gone to the carnival, had he never seen the snow cones, never would have crossed his mind that he even wanted a snow cone. And he never would have eaten sugar that day because it would have been until, you know, the next meal. So it's sort of clearly there's something happens. And again, whether it's primarily in the brain or whether it's primarily in the body, in turn stimulating the brain to act, I think it's the latter, but something about how this fructose is metabolized drives this binge eating behavior. So thank you so much for saying this because, you know, years ago I used to have an apple, you know, it's a four o'clock snack every day. And I noticed, I go, wow, I'm hungrier than I thought. I thought I was just a little hungry, but suddenly I'm starving. And of course I took to Google and I said, does anybody else get starving after they eat an apple? (laughs) And there were like loads and loads of people. And I said, what's going on here? And I just became intrigued. And so it totally makes sense with what you're saying. The concept of an appetizer is literally to fire up your appetite so that you will want to eat the main course. I've always wondered if it's funny, the whole concept of dessert, we think, you know, we just take desserts for granted as we take many of the ways that we infuse sugar into our bodies in this day and age. But the idea of a dessert course only appears in... um, in you know, Western cultures for the most part <clears throat> in the 19th century. And I've often wondered if, you know, again, it's sort of another way in which you can trick your body into eating more and that sugar helps the body do it. And what's interesting is, again, in, in you know, France and, and Switzerland, countries where um, they have had historically re- relatively low sugar consumption um, and we talk about the French paradox, which the 
the country with high fat consumption and, and very little heart disease and, and one of the longest lifespans in the world. And the conventional thinking is it's maybe because they, they have a culture of good eating and they drink red wine. I think it's because they, they eat high fat diets and, and traditionally never had, uh, they're about a hundred years behind us in the amount of sugar they're consuming per capita. But these are countries where after dinner you have a cheese plate or a cheese fondue rather than after dinner you have angel food cake or a ice cream sundae or stuff like that. So That makes so much sense. So yeah. a lot of people ask me, you know, what about fruit and what about natural sweeteners and even artificial sweeteners? And I know it's really controversial because fruit has all these wonderful nutrients, but clearly we're eating too much of it, right? Well, I have trouble with the concept of too much period, because, you know, if you think about when the the USDA started producing, the Department of Agriculture started producing its dietary guidelines back in 1980, the advice was avoid too much sugar, and the words too much are, they're a tautology, actually I was in, on my book tour, I was up in Seattle, and the hotel I was staying in had a a, uh, quote from uh, Mark Twain, part of an advertisement for the restaurant. It was a quote from Mark Twain on the elevator, uh, inside the elevator on a poster, and it said, too much of anything is bad for you. Too much of good whiskey is just getting started. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so, yeah, too much of anything is bad for you. That's clearly the point. The question is, um, you know, which sugar, does sugar have these toxic effects kind of independent of the dose? So, you know, we tend to, and then toxicologists will tell you that the dose makes the poison. So there's always some dose. It's virtually, you know, any poison, any toxin that you could take, and it will not, you know, if you take a small enough dose, it won't kill you. And, and you know, there are famous examples of history of, of people. I'm trying to think of the crazy Russian monk whose name is going to escape me at the moment. Um, who was famous for having, you know, by taking a little bit of arsenic every day, had developed, a, uh, uh, you know, the capability to be poisoned and not actually feel it. But I'm rambling. The dose makes the poison. When we consume an apple, so a three-ounce apple has, I mean, a medium-sized apple has about the amount of sugar. So it's both sucrose, which is the same sugar of cane and beet sugar, and fructose alone as about three ounces of apple juice. So if you take that medium-sized apple, which you're having for your mid-afternoon snack, and it might take you 20 minutes or 15 minutes to eat it, and you put it in the juicer, you're going to get about three ounces of apple juice, which you could consume instantaneously. If you have a 12-ounce can of apple juice, that's the equivalent of the sugar in three or four apples, and you're still likely to drink that 12-ounce can of apple juice in about five minutes, where you're unlikely to even eat three or four apples in a row. And if you did, probably going to spread it out over an hour or more if that's all you had to eat. So when we take the sugar in the apple and turn it into apple juice, we're also removing the fiber in the apple that slows down the digestion. So now your 12-ounce can of apple juice, not only is it the equivalent sugar of three to four apples, 
but you can drink it quickly. You can digest it almost instantaneously, and that fructose is going to hit the liver all at once. And the idea is your liver didn't evolve to deal with that kind of fructose load. And even when our liver was seeing, our livers were seeing fructose from fruit, we used to get fruit seasonally if we got it at all. So there are many populations that rarely saw fruit. Any, and when they did see fruit, berries, for instance, they would be you know, a seasonal thing that appeared for six weeks and two months, and they might binge eat the fruit, and they might even get a little fatter while they were binge eating the fruit, and then you go through another 10 months before you see fruit again. And it was only with the, you know, the Industrial Revolution, the invention of refrigerators and freezers and, and railroad cars with freezers and you know, uh, uh, freighters with freezers that we get to the point where we are today where we can consume fruit all year round. And I think fruit all year round and fruit all day long, and we're being told to consume fruit all day long because of this belief that fruits and vegetables are an inherent part of a healthy diet. Therefore, if you eat four apples a day, that's clearly you're getting the vitamins and minerals or the vitamins in four apples. That's got to be a good thing. So on one level, you know, the apple juice is clearly the worst thing because if you think I'm right... You know, oh, I totally agree, large, yeah. Yeah, you're getting this large dose and you're getting it dumped on the liver very quickly. And the liver, in an effort to deal with that, will convert some of that sugar to fat. And then the fat seems to be the thing that in the liver that is likely cause of this condition called insulin resistance, which is what type 2 diabetes is. And so that's the sort of cause and effect. But even eating fruit all year long, like we've been told to do, and eating it multiple times a day, is not something that's sort of natural for the human species in any way, any shade of the imagination. And I think a lot of people, so some people can clearly tolerate it, just like some people can smoke two packs of cigarettes every day and never get lung cancer. Um, But uh, clearly, I, I think a lot of us can't, and if we're overweight or obese or if you're diabetic, certainly, uh, I think the benefits from whatever vitamins you're getting in the fruit is outweighed tremendously by the, the sugar content and the carbohydrate content in general. You know, I used to be thought of as like the devil mother because I stopped serving <laughs> orange juice in my house. <laughs> It's like, how could you not serve that? But even like today, all these juice cleanses are so popular. You know, what are your thoughts on that? They, they seem to be very high in sugar when you read the labels. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems with our nutrition environment in general is, well, first of all, the conventional thinking on diet and weight and diabetes just doesn't work, clearly. Because if it worked, we wouldn't have an obesity and a diabetes epidemic. <clears throat> so the world is full of people who are fatter than they want to be, who are moving towards diabetes or are diabetic and don't know what to do about it and their doctors aren't helping and they're, the, what they're reading in the papers isn't helping and the, you know, the sort of medical establishment on some level is perfectly happy to get these people on drugs because it's the easiest thing to do and everyone makes money. So the doctor writes prescriptions, the pharmaceutical industries get rich and the patients are, can at least treat the symptoms. And meanwhile, nobody knows what to do, and so you end up growing a world of sort of fringe alternative uh, providers of health and nutrition information, of which I'm one of them, who say, oh, we know what to do because it works for us. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, in my case, I'm saying it not only worked for me, it's, a, you know, I'm giving a historical background and a reason. I think I can give you the research to demonstrate that it not only worked for me, I could explain why it worked and why it would work for everyone else, too. But, again, who wants to listen to a journalist when it comes to giving health advice? You know, it's sort of ideally. I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, so then you've got people who are recommending, you know, vegetarian diets because they think meat is the problem and people pushing, you know, vegan diets because they think all animal products are the problem and then, you know, people pushing all these various kinds of cleanses. And, um, you know, to me, if I'm right, then doing a fruit juice cleanse for two weeks, I mean, you're going to cut calories, you know, you're going to cut everything out of your diet but the the juice, and you might not even be having that much juice. So when you actually look at the sort of carbohydrate load and the sugar load you're getting, it may not be that much. So maybe in two weeks you'll feel a lot you'll feel somewhat better, and there's always a placebo effect to doing any of these phenomena. But I, to me, it's, it's, it's just that, it, yeah, I wish, and this is why you mentioned in the beginning, I, I was co-founder of a new organization called the Nutrition Science Initiative, um, and the idea was, you know, what we desperately need is better science than what these nutrition and obesity researchers have been giving us for the past 50 years. And, you know, it's one of these situations where better late than never really comes in because as it is, we've got these epidemics that are out of control. The Director General of the World Health Organization recently basically threw up her hands at an annual meeting of the National Academies of Sciences in the U.S. and said, you know, not only have we completely failed to control these epidemics, but she's predicting that they were going to completely fail for the foreseeable future. And it's like, what are people supposed to do? Well, they read like my books and other books, Dean Ornish's books and, and, and Joel Furman's books, and they try anything until they get something that works. Um, but it's, it's a mess of a situation. I don't think cleanses are a good idea, but that's me. Well, I, I tend to agree. We're going to be yeah. going to break now. Um, this is great. We're, we're all confused. We're all super yeah. confused. And when we get back, we'll try to figure out some good you know, sensible, sensible things to do. So stay tuned. I'm talking to Gary Taubes. Case Against Sugar will be back shortly. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you a busy, stressed, and hungry go-getter who knows what to do to get healthier but has trouble doing it? The problem with popular diets is that they were designed for other people, not you. Sure, they might work for the short term, but for the longer term results, you need a plan designed specifically for your unique body and lifestyle. How about the stress in your life? Do you ever stop and take a deep breath? Do you know what all this stress is doing to your health? Healthy living strategist and author of Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed, Lisa Lutan will get you on your way with coaching, online courses and challenges, and even retreats. You will learn tips and strategies to help you calm down, get 
healthy and make you feel and look better than ever. For a limited time, Lisa Lutan is offering a free 15-minute breakthrough session to help you get started feeling better right away. Just visit HealthyHappyAndHip.com to get your free 15-minute breakthrough strategy session. That's HealthyHappyAndHip. Yes, you heard it right. HealthyHappyAndHip.com and enter your info in the contact page. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. Feel like sending an email instead? Send it to Lisa at HealthyHappyAndHip.com. Now, back to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. Here again is Lisa Lutan. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I'm here with Gary Tubbs, author of The Case Against Sugar, and we're talking about what are we supposed to eat? So, Gary, there is so, so much confusion right now. You know, we're hearing don't eat grains or eat whole grains. We're hearing, yes, we should eat fat again, but then the China study says don't eat dairy. So is that the fat we're supposed to eat or not? And are we supposed to put better in our coffee? And there's just so much nutritional information kind of up for grabs. So can you give us a direction? Like, what should we be eating and what should we be avoiding? Okay, so uh, the conditional that we can put at every sentence I say from here on in is, gonna be, is if I'm right. So I had the opportunity, here's what I could say beyond a shadow of a doubt. I've done more research on this than any human being alive who's writing about it, okay? I had the opportunity uh, for a variety of reasons to spend a decade of my life re-researching the history and science of nutrition and obesity and diabetes. And that's what led to my first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. There were cover stories in the New York Times Magazine, award-winning investigations for the journal Science. So I have credibility. So this is what I learned from my research, which is basically what we're worried about are all these diseases associated with obesity and diabetes and this condition called metabolic syndrome, which is uh, fundamentally a disorder of insulin, you know, what's called insulin signaling, insulin being this hormone that not only tells your body to burn the carbohydrates you consume, but also to store fat or mobilize fat or store, it just basically runs how your body uses your fuels. So in order to, the, the causes of those syndromes pretty clearly from my research are first sugar, because it causes this condition called insulin resistance, and then all these other easily digestible carbohydrates. So, you know, highly refined grains, starchy vegetables like potatoes. So for those of us who gain weight easily or already obese, becoming diabetic, the first thing you'd want to do is get sugar out of your diet as much as you can. And while sugar is in literally hundreds of thousands of food products, we can get rid of, you know, a huge portion by avoiding the obvious sources, which are, you know, sugary cereals, fruit juices, which in my way of thinking are just you know, vitamin water with sugar added, vitamin water itself I find offensive, I'm sorry, because it professes to be good for you but has sugar added. Um, you know, the 
candy bars, whether they're health food bars that are call themselves health food bars because they're low in fat, um, if they've got sugar, just look on the label. Sugar's in there. You know, if it's got, my rule is if it's got more than two or three grams per serving, I don't want to eat it. Um, the, and ideally zero. Um, you know, the sugary beverages, the sodas, the paste, the sugar, the sweets, the pastries, the desserts. I mean, we know what they are. We feel guilty after we eat them. And then the sports drinks, which is another sort of long con that I don't know if that's why the companies like Gatorade did it, but, you know, first you get us to exercise and perspire, and then the natural thing to do is to replace the electrolytes, and then you load it up with sugar, and you're now drinking a sugar-sweetened beverage that has this mild benefit of having some minerals in it. So all of that goes if you want to be as healthy as you can be. And if you think of it, again, from this perspective that maybe sugar is a bit of a drug, then you won't miss it. Eventually you'll get to the point, just like I can't imagine smoking a cigarette today, despite having been addicted to cigarettes and nicotine for 20 years. I Clearly, most people, when they get off sugar, stop missing it. Doesn't mean, you know, if you're sitting at, at dinner some night and the waitress, nothing I, you know, the... The owner wants to thank you for attending their restaurant. They give you a free dessert. Um, <laughs> not going to fire up a craving that you're going to have to deal with. But for the most part, you'll just stop missing it. And then this other issue is, what about the other carbs? And like I said, the grains and pasta and um, the potatoes. And clearly there are people who can tolerate it. But for those of us who gain weight easily, if we don't want to be to gain weight if we don't want to move down this spectrum towards obesity and diabetes and heart disease, and it also includes cancer and dementia, then avoiding those easily digestible carbohydrates, you know, the grains, the starches. And uh, then it gets really tricky because, you know, in my world, you're replacing it with naturally occurring fats. And that's where the medical, that's where the controversy stokes up, because I am one of those people who thinks that butter is healthy. Um, and that Do you put it I in your want, coffee? I did up until a week ago. Um, I stopped because I'm doing an experiment. But, yeah, I got hooked on uh, Bulletproof Coffee for a few months. Um, and then I wondered that I was so hooked on it, maybe it wasn't a good thing, so maybe I should see what life's like without it, and it seems to be pretty fine without it, too. So, <laughs> um, the, But what uh, about cheese also? Like, you know, we, we're so confused about dairy in general. Well, and again, you know, dairy got implicated in this crazy low-fat movement that I spent a lot of my investigative research, this, um, you know, debunking. Um, so the idea was we're not supposed to eat saturated fat because that raises cholesterol and it's a raised cholesterol that clogs our arteries. And, you know, this is this sort of crazy, naive idea that just, um, you know, for a lot of reasons I discuss in my books and, and, uh, and the journalist Nina Teicholz does a wonderful job discussing this in her book, The Big Fat Surprise. It's got embraced on a worldwide level that we should avoid fat and saturated fat in them and we should either avoid dairy or we should turn our dairy into what Michael Pollan would call a food-like substance. So you, instead of having full-fat milk or full-fat yogurt, 
you remove some of the fat, and then you could claim it's healthier for you. Um, or worse, with the yogurt, remove the fat and replace it with you know, sugar and high fructose corn syrup, and then you advertise it as a heart-healthy diet food. Um, so, I, you know, I think dairy for most people are, you know, again, for those of us who eat these low-carb, high-fat diets, um, you know, cheese and even you know, butter and um, heavy cream tend to be foods we consume a lot of. And, and I, my reading of the scientific literature is that this is a healthy way to eat, but that's not how the medical community reads it. So, again, there you're taking a risk. But you know, the argument I make is, you know, we all can experiment with our how we eat, and um, the, a lot of this is self-experimentation. So in my books, like Why We Get Fat, I explain, you know, I try to... Well, I think I successfully debunked this sort of inane notion that people just get fat because they take in more calories than they expend. And then I discussed the hormones and enzymes that regulate fat accumulation. And the message of all that, which is textbook science, is if you want to get fat out of your fat cells, you've got to lower your insulin levels. And the way you do that is by replacing the carbs in your diet with fat because fat's the one, ironically, the one macronutrient that doesn't stimulate insulin secretion. So when you do that, you know, people do that. If they try it and do it and they see it works for them, you know, usually it's like now, it used to be your doctor would talk you out of it. Now, because they say, I don't care that you lost 60 pounds. You're, hey, you're killing yourself with all that fat. Um, Now, you go on these diets and you lose 30 pounds, you can say, look, it's a diet... We know that the single biggest risk factor for virtually every chronic disease is being overweight or obese, or being obese. So if a diet allows you to maintain a healthy weight and to do it without being hungry, it's got to be lowering your risk factor of these diseases, I think. That's the argument I've been making. So. No, no, I totally agree. I, I think that what a lot of my clients tell me is when they take the cheese or maybe some of the dairy out, some of the bloating and the indigestion and some of those things go away. But I guess that's a different issue than satiety. Yeah, I mean, the truth is, you know, some of us can tolerate dairy. I don't know why. Um, It's funny, I was having an email conversation with the reader who said she can tolerate raw dairy, she can't tolerate. So she can have raw cheese, raw milk. I gave up cheese a few years ago because I have what my wife kindly calls gastrointestinal distress. Um, <clears throat> so now I'm thinking, hey, maybe raw cheese because I miss it. And, mm. you know, when I'm really breaking this down to the simplest level, I had the opportunity, wonderful opportunity to live in Paris in the mid-80s for a couple years. And, you know, French cuisine is very full of fats and it's full of cheeses and it's full of butters and the French were sort of an inanely healthy population. I mean, they lived as long as any population in the world. Um, And, you know, we should be able to eat like that if we're not eating the sugars and the white bread and the, you know, the highly refined grains. It's so interesting. It is all just experimenting, isn't it? But I think just for our listeners' sake, I mean, healthy proteins, lots of vegetables and healthy fats is a no-brainer, right? Yeah. I mean, again, it leaves open this question of how we're going to define healthy. Right. Um, You know, like, um, for me, yeah, if it's, 
naturally occurring and it didn't pass through a factory to get to you, it's probably good for you. But again, there are a lot of people, you know, there are, I think there are a lot of uh, people who are so predisposed to get fats and the carbohydrates in their diet that they really do have to, you know, if they want to be as healthy as they can be and as lean as they can be, it means really, you know, staying away from virtually all carbs, but in, you know, the green vegetables, cauliflower, whatever. What about like the starchy vegetables, like sweet potatoes and that type of thing? Well, again, I, you know, the paleo world allows, so my take on paleo, it's kind of like not your Atkins diet or not your father's Atkins diet. So it's a new way to sort of think of the same concept without the, the history. But so they do allow tubers because our hunter-gatherer ancestors consume tubers. Um, but again, if you are, you know, highly, that, and it clearly works for some people. But not for all people. And if somebody wants to try a paleo diet, which, again, is restricting sugars and grains because our paleo ancestors didn't eat grains, and it's restricting, uh, you know, most modern foods and, and, and cheese, in fact, most dairy because they didn't eat dairy. Um, and it doesn't work for somebody or they lose, they, you know, the, I think everyone will get healthier if they go from this sort of conventional American diet with all its junk and, you know, sugar and processed white flour and, you know, and switch to paleo, they'll get healthier and a lot of people will lose weight. And some people will be, you know, as an ideal weight and health for themselves, but they might be, for those who don't, I would say consider a, you know, getting rid of the sweet potatoes and the yams and sort of adding back more to the basics. Gary, butter. please tell our listeners where they can contact you and learn more about your books. Uh, well, my website is GaryTaubes.com, G-A-R-Y-T-A-U-B-E-S.com. And, you know, needless, my books are available, I hope, everywhere, but certainly Amazon and the major bookstores. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. Honestly, I feel like I could talk to you for like 10 hours and not run out of questions for you. You're just such a wealth of knowledge. I'm really appreciative. Well, thank you for having me. And I too could clearly go on for hours. It's wonderful to be passionate about this stuff. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us today. Um, Come visit my website, Healthy, Happy, and Hip, and leave me a note, tell me what you think of the show. And if you are interested in taking the sugar out of your life, let me know. In fact, if you text 44144, enter the word, word healthy, I'll send you a little gift and give you some more information about my programs. Again, text 44144, enter the word healthy. It has been such a pleasure today. I hope you have a very wonderful week and we'll be back again next week. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode on busy, stressed, and food obsessed. Did you get some great ideas from today's show? Join Lisa Lutan again next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week.